Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about herds, masks, and the Carlsbad Revolt, the deep, wide American battle, and the Supreme Court betrays the voters. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. So there were a lot of things that happened very recently related to COVID and the uh, ongoing battle between seeming the government powers limiting people and the rights of people to fight back, to speak up, to want to have their kind of their life back and have their, their normal uh, life activities back. So I want to start by telling you uh, in Carlsbad, California, where uh, it's just north of San Diego. My husband, I lived in San Diego many years, been to Carlsbad many, many times. Very, very sweet, cute little uh, beach town. Carlsbad decided as of last Friday, the restaurant owners, and I read one report that said it was 120 restaurant and business owners, I'm not sure of that number, but they simply decided to have the Carlsbad Revolt. They decided to open their restaurants in defiance of Governor Newsom's order to open their restaurants and to have those restaurants open for sitting and eating inside as well as outside, not permitted by the governor's order. And I wanted to, this is a very short clip I sent to Matt the Wonderful to play uh, about what the reasons are behind these people's thinking why they would do this. Today marks a different day, and here's why. We're tired of waiting for this governor to get, it, to get it right. We have determined that, you know, we are the people. And when the government doesn't get it right, we gave them the power to govern, we can take it back. Today we take it back. We are declaring ourselves open for business, outdoor, indoor, safely and responsibly. Okay, you gotta love this because, you know, Carl, Carlsbad is a, you know, it's a beachy community, so it certainly has a mix of people politically. But this people, this community, and communities all over the coast in California, they survive on tourism. They survive on restaurants and little shops, businesses. That's how they put food on the table at home, because they have these successful businesses. So Carlsbad, as I say, just a really cute little beach community, decided to defy Governor Newsom's ongoing draconian COVID orders. And it is a spirit of, I don't want to say revolution, but spirit of rebellion that I want to talk about today in a variety of ways, because it really needs to happen is the American people have to recognize at some point you get your freedom back by claiming it, by just saying, you know, um, we're going to live life normally with respect to the restaurants in California. You know, if there is a true bubonic plague level emergency, then okay, you know, you have to kind of freeze life in place. But even that, you can't keep it in place forever. You can't have the government freeze you in place forever. forever. But we're now coming up on a year since the beginning of the kind of very draconian shutdown orders put in place in California and across the country. And it has crossed the line into an absolute intrusion uh, into the American people's right to live with, under the promise of the Declaration of Independence. You have the right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. You cannot have your life and you can't have your liberty in California if you can't run your business and you can't 
put, you can't employ your cooks and your busboys and your cleanup crew and everyone it takes to run a restaurant. You simply can't function at some point if the government has shut you down and the, the pittance of checks being sent by the government don't begin to make up for it. And actually, I also love the spirit of these people in Carlsbad because they don't want to have, they don't want to just say, okay, fine, I guess I'll go on welfare. I guess I'll just be unemployed and wait for an unemployment check. They actually want to work. They want their businesses to thrive. They want their communities to thrive. Love this Carlsbad revolt. Um, I have not heard yet what Governor Newsom uh, is going to do, if anything, about this. He's very worried himself because I think that people who are seeking signatures um, to actually recall him, they have met the requirement under law in California to begin the formal recall process. And so Newsom's probably a little more careful than he used to be when he thought he was an emperor because the people want to recall him. A significant chunk of people want to recall him. That still is unsettled. But I called this first five segment. I talked about, you know, the mass and, and um, I, I heard the mask and Carlsbad revolt. Um, Dr. Fauci was interviewed um, over the weekend. And he basically said to this woman on, it was a CNN interview. I always forget her name. Alice, I don't know what her name is. Yeah, I think Alison Camerata, whatever her name is. She's interviewing him and she said, well, what is this thing about masks? I mean, do you think masks can go? You know, we can need them in 2022. And he basically said, yes. He basically said, yeah, you know, even if you have the vaccine uh, and you got your second dose, and you're doing a double mask, you probably still need it going to 2022. Dr. Fauci and left-wingers who are using COVID policy as a means of bringing more and more government-controlled society into America and trying to make that the norm for the American people. They aren't going to stop unless there is this kind of rebellion. And on a related and actually very upbeat note, uh, there was a, a great story um, that was the... Um, out of the uh, Johns Hopkins University, uh, a gentleman named, I looked him up, he's a, a Johns Hopkins doctor and health policy expert named Marty McCary, M-A-K-A-R-Y, Marty McCary, Johns Hopkins, so he's like, no dummy, Johns Hopkins, both a medical doctor and health policy expert, announced, based on actual data, not fear-mongering data, that number one, COVID cases are down in America by about 76%. Get that again. Cases are down by 76%. And part of that, so you know, is, he says, is not all attributable to the vaccine. Maybe some of it is, but the cases going down is not attributable to the vaccine. And part is attributable because the government is starting to all of a sudden discover that they don't have to count every single death that happens as a COVID death. They're beginning to recount them as deaths from flu, which they really were. But the most important thing Dr. McCary announced from Johns Hopkins is this. He's predicting America will reach herd immunity by April. That's just around the corner, my friends. So this herd immunity idea is the idea so many, and he said part of it is because many more people probably had COVID and didn't even know it. I mean, they had, they may have thought they had the flu, they had a mild case, they didn't get tested, they're not in the statistics. He's saying but part of us do because a lot of people probably had it and they're immune to it. So he's saying America will reach herd immunity by April. And I want to put those things in the first five and wrap up the first five by saying this. It's not the same universe of facts where you have one actual practicing doctor 
and health policy expert Johns Hopkins saying, we're going to be at herd immunity in April. And you have Fauci, the dictator in Washington, saying, thinking we're still going to have to have double masking into 2022 with people still having to socially distance and still do the, the, um, the masking and all the other stuff involved with the COVID policy. Those two things don't belong in the same universe. <clears throat> They're not part of the same reality. And I think America's just starting to realize, given what we now understand, the 99% plus survival rate in this country for COVID, the spreading of the vaccine, the fact that we've discovered that fearful as we were at the beginning, because we didn't know enough about COVID, now we have treatments of all kinds that are proving under actual studies, new studies being done, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, budesonide, other ones I can't even pronounce, more and more medications being shown to be effective in treating the symptoms of COVID. They're therapies that are effective, so we don't have to shut down the society. But somehow this news has not caught up with Dr. Fauci, who's still thinking he's going to be in charge in 2022, telling y'all about masks and everything else. And I think it's a really important thing, friends. I, I mean, I'm, I'm your everyday Joe American. I want everyone to be healthy. I don't want to have a, a disease running rampant. I don't want people to be sick. But I also want America to have liberty. And this is what, you evident, what was evidenced in Carlsbad, California. And I'm telling you, friends, this will spread. This will spread in California. Other beach communities saying, hey, wait a minute. We've been shut down all this time. We've not been allowed to have people eating inside restaurants. Wait a minute. They're doing it. Everything seems fine there. It's going to spread. It's going to take a spirit of, of assertion of the people, their right to live in freedom, their right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is going to be needed to push back against the ongoing repression of the, uh, the COVID policy, use this as an opportunity to shut down America crowd, which now has power in Washington. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. On this subject of what you know, I call the deep wide American battle, it is so interesting what has happened in America over the last four years under President Trump. Because what has become clear to millions and millions of Americans is that we have not, it's not necessarily, it is a growing divide within America, but it's a growing recognition on the part of many people of just how determined and a determined, relentless, unending leftists are, Marxists are in this country, the Democrat Marxist party that now has control in Washington, how determined they are not just to win the next election, not just to get themselves over the finish line, oh, golly gee, look, we won this election, but to grow the size and scope and power of government and to use every means necessary to shut down, to fight back against people who love the idea of the freedom of the individual. There is a just, this uh, among many, many blessings of America that came from the Trump presidency was I think it opened the eyes of millions of Americans who actually thought that today's Democrat party is kind of, you know, they're on the American playing field. They're a little more on the left. They like higher taxes and, you know, bigger welfare programs and they don't like the military too much, but you know, they're, they're kind of the American playing field. It's helped Americans open their eyes and recognize that we are in a battle for 
the heart and soul of America, the identity of America, the future of freedom in America. And I want to give you some examples of just how flaming, relentless the left is on every single solitary issue. To start with, President Trump has been, in the time he, when he was candidate Trump and then President Trump, responding to numerous demands that he turn over his taxes. Now, I got to tell you, you know, I'm, I'm going to guess a lot of his advisors said, you know, it's worth it. Turn them over, whatever, because you're going to get pummeled if you don't turn them over. He had his reasons. He didn't want to. There's no law on the planet, no law in America that says President Trump or any president must turn over their tax returns to the American people. It's just not a law. It is considered good policy. You recognize as a candidate or elected official that you subject yourself to scorn, ridicule, and suspicion if you don't turn your taxes over, but you don't have to do it. But that answer, that you don't have to turn your taxes over if you don't want to, was never, ever, ever good enough for the leftist mentality, mentality that leftist ideology mentality that says at any cost we will get what we want you will give us what we want nobody gets to ignore what we want nobody gets to avoid what we want the ends justify the means we're going to destroy this guy trump we're going to destroy him and so any means necessary so the legal battles during the time of trump's presidency did not result in an order that he releases taxes however the supreme court did grant that motion, grant that in a case pending before it. Um, I believe just this morning, the court ordered that President Trump must turn over his tax returns, must release them uh, to, um, is to the U.S. attorney in New York named Cyrus Vance, who is the son of the Cyrus Vance who served under the Carter administration. And as a very bizarre aside, I went to law school and graduated in the same year with Cyrus Vance. And so I actually know him, but not well. Not at all, really. I haven't been in touch with him since law school, but he happened to be in a law school class. But he's pressing, Cyrus Vance, among other entities, pressing and pressing and pressing to get President Trump's tax returns. So the Supreme, and this is, you know, he's obviously out of office. He, he's gone, you know, he, he's not there. But this is a, when I tell you the leftist mentality, the battle, what the leftist will do forever and a day, it is like a shark that has finally caught on to its prey. They will never stop until they have destroyed it, bitten it and, and, and chewed it up to smithereens. This is what the left wants to do to President Trump, as well as, of course, to his strong supporters. On President Trump, he issued a statement today. So the Supreme Court ruled um, that he, his tax returns have to be uh, released. And he gave a statement. Uh, it's called, that President Trump did, the continuing political persecution of President Donald Trump. And this is from the office. This is the thing that Trump did from the office of the 45th president of the United States. I'm going to read just a little bit of what he had to say. Because Trump is recognizing the left is never going to give up trying to destroy him. And again, my friends, please understand, it's not personal to Trump. They, they do hate him, but it's not really personal to Trump. Why the left is so viciously determined to destroy President Trump is because of his message to the American people. His number one, his reassertion of the goodness, the extraordinary greatness of America, and the idea that the American people 
should be proud of their country. The American people should stand up for their country, that America is a good and noble country rooted in the best ideas that ever created a nation. These ideas, what President Trump ran on, reasserting, reestablishing, re-energizing love of America. And the second and related point, what he ran on was the message to the American people that you have the right as American citizens to expect that the government looks out for your interests, that the government actually stands up for and protects your interests, that our immigration policy and our border policy and our tax policy and our policy with respect to trade with foreign nations, all of that should be centered around preserving and protecting the idea of America and of the American people, the America first idea. This was so novel to the left and so antithetical to the globalist mindset they had in mind, the globalist socialist path they were taking America down, that this is what, this is what really enrages the left about Trump, is because he re-inspired that love of America in the American people. And this makes the left crazy, that somebody had the nerve to tell the American people that you matter, that you are the sovereign, that we the people are the sovereign, this is what drives the left nuts by him. So back to what happened. So the Supreme Court orders he's got to turn over taxes. So I always want to tell you a little portion of the statement he had today. This investigation of his, whatever the tax issue was, it's secondary. It's, it's not really why Cyrus Vance went to the Supreme Court again to try to get the taxes. It's because they want to get Trump. But this investigation is a continuation of the greatest political witch hunt in the history of our country whether it was the never-ending 32 million Mueller hoax, which already investigated everything that could possibly be investigated, Russia, 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 where there was a finding of no collusion, or the two ridiculous, crazy Nancy-inspired impeachment attempts where I was found not guilty, it just never ends. So now, for more than, for more than two years, New York City has been looking at almost every transaction I've ever done. This is Trump speaking every transaction I've ever done, including seeking tax returns, which were done by among the biggest and most prestigious law and accounting firms in the United States. The Tea Party was treated far better by the IRS than Donald Trump. The Supreme Court never should have let this fishing expedition happen, but they did. This is something which has never happened to a president before. It is all Democrat-inspired in a totally Democrat location, New York City and state, completely controlled and dominated by a heavily reported enemy of mine, Governor Andrew Cuomo. These are attacks by Democrats willing to do anything to stop the almost 75 million people, the most votes by far ever gotten by a sitting president. Trump throws that in. I love it who voted for me in the election, an election which many people experts feel that I won, and I agree. The new phenomenon of headhunting prosecutors, and then he goes on to other things. But this is Trump and the Trump team, the Trump mindset standing up. This is part of what I'm talking about today, what I'm trying to get to in my show. It's gonna take standing up on the part of Trump, putting out a statement like that, and part of the American people doing what they can do, legislators doing what they can do, recognizing the danger to the American Republic and the future of freedom stemming from the left that now has power in this country. Another example I wanted to mention to you, and this is a relatively small thing, but an example of what I mean about the relentlessness of the American left. 
So Rush Limbaugh, as you all know, passed on. And, you know, he was just an icon to conservatives and, and, you know, reviled by the left, you know, just revered by the right, reviled by the left. There you have it. But in Florida, Governor DeSantis ordered, because Rush was a Florida citizen, uh, ordered the Florida flags to be flown at half-mast. So, okay, so he's honoring what, you know, probably the single most recognizable name of a radio host in America, I mean, and, and a revered radio host, a massive million, whatever it was, it was 25, 30, sometimes 32 million people tuned in in a country of 320 million. That's enormous, enormous audience, enormously loved. So DeSantis says, Governor DeSantis says, you know, let, let's do the flags a half mask. The Florida Attorney General, I'm sorry, the Florida agriculture person. It wasn't even, I got to find out for sure. I think it was the Florida, yeah, the ag commissioner, a woman ag commissioner in Florida uh, named Fried or Freeze, F-R-I-E-D is probably pronounced Freed. She announced, she ordered the offices under her jurisdiction not to fly the flags at half mast. She can't even stand the only statewide elected Democrat in Florida, only statewide elected Democrat. She can't stand to even have Rush Limbaugh's, you know, honored by having the flags flown at half mask for a couple of days, whatever it is, a week, whatever they do it for, probably a week at the most. She can't even stand that. She's saying, no, we can't even honor this person who, who actually did pass on and actually is, you know, by, by uh, everyone, people's accounts who are, you know, honest, revered and loved. This is no, no, can't do that, can't do that. And so I must say, in the spirit of rebellion that I am supporting, the spirit of standing up and fighting for truth, which is what it is to stand up for honoring Rush Limbaugh, what he did, I hope every entity in Florida does their flags at half-mast. Put them in half-mast just to tell the, send the message to this Florida Ag Commissioner that you don't tell us who we can honor. You don't shut us down and tell us whether or not we can honor someone that literally millions of Americans revered just because you hate him. But again, this, this, this visceral hatred spewing out of the mindset, out of the words, out of the mouths, out of the actions of leftists, it just knows no bounds. I mean, destroy Limbaugh because he, he did very much the same things that Trump did re-inspired conservatism, re-inspired Americans who love their country, re-inspired people to believe in themselves. One thing Rush was so good at, and we played that clip last week from CPAC, Rush encouraged people at CPAC, I think it was 2009 when he gave this speech, this idea that we conservatives, we look out at America and Americans and we see fellow Americans whom we love and revere and we respect them and we assume that each of them has God-given talents and gifts and we encourage them to be their best, to find their path in life, to pursue their version of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness and find your dream and keep the government, government regulation and taxes and onerous control, keep that out of the path of American citizens so they can find their place in the American dream. That is such a mainstream and Main Street American message, but that kind of message drives the leftist, collectivist, Marxist out of their minds because their power, the leftist power 
comes from having people feel helpless, from having people feel like they can't possibly function in life, they can't even function at all without the government feeding, clothing, housing, educating them, simply treating them as a peasant to be fed, clothed, housed, educated, and parceled off into wherever the government wants you to be. The left is, has no power and no place to go if more and more Americans recognize the idea of America and their inherent value and worth and merit and place in this culture. And this is back to Florida. This is what drives this ag commissioner and other leftists nuts because Limbaugh encouraged people the same way Trump encouraged people to use the freedom of America, to revere it, to pursue it, to demand it and use that freedom to find their path forward, their way, to not think they needed to be dependent on the government, to have a strong and free America. One other example in this segment, I, I you know, kind of gave this the last, this segment kind of a last minute title, The Deep Wide American Battle. Another one of the fighters needs to be the state legislatures. I'm gonna to get to the Supreme Court in a minute, what they did with the uh, election cases today, but I wanna talk about one other thing that states can do. So in the state of South Dakota, there's a bill pending in which, by the way, Governor Noam is this rock star conservative, which I actually, I'm starting to hear, as an aside, I'm starting to hear people talk about the idea that, you know, and for the presidential election in 2024, what about DeSantis Noam? Florida Governor DeSantis, South Dakota Governor Noam as the ticket. I'm telling you folks, that'd be a rock star ticket. Anyway. Back to South Dakota. There's a bill pending in which the legislature is saying essentially to the Democrat Marxist party now running America, which is under Biden only nominally, he doesn't know what he's doing, but he's up there doing things. But the legislation in South Dakota is saying, you know what, actually, we are stepping out. We are asserting ourselves to say that we in South Dakota are not going to follow in our state any unconstitutional orders and laws passed by the federal government. And you know, you can say, well, that's kind of silly because if the orders or laws are unconstitutional, you know, then you'll go to court and you eventually get a judge to rule on them. And so once a judge rules, then of course you don't have to follow. If it's unconstitutional, the court will throw it out. But this is why I like it. It's preemptive. It's saying, you know, we're not going to listen to you. And the single hugest issue in which this is an imperative thing and every single red state in America should do it, do something like what's happening in South Dakota, say to Washington, we're not following your HR1 mandating vote fraud bill, which the left has called, I think they have it called for the people act or something like that. Some ridiculously farcical name, completely opposite of what it does. We talked about it enough in the show. You already know, I believe you know, but HR1 is the bill the Democrats put forward when they very first had back the House, the uh, majority in the House in 2019. First bill they put out, first bill this time, basically says, you know, every single method of vote fraud that Democrats have cooked up, especially in California, you know, the uh, mail-in ballots, a day of registration, no signature verification, uh, no voter ID, everything they want so that there can, you can just have rampant fraud. This is what 
the Democrat-controlled, Marxist-controlled Washington House of Representatives and Senate apparently wants, they're mandating those things, eviscerating election integrity provisions that many states have in place to try to assure that legal citizens actually have a vote and actually have a vote that matters, that is not diluted or destroyed or you know, balanced out by an illegal vote, by a vote by someone who doesn't have a legal right to vote here. So really kudos to South Dakota, another example, another way that says this is how we fight. We stand up. And I really would love if every red state would say, you know what, us too, we're, we're with them. We're not going to follow at least HR1 because they, the federal government, I know that they are arguing that they have a constitutional basis for the uh, HR1 because it falls under backing up for the same reason that Congress believed they had the constitutional right to pass the law, the Voter, Voting Rights Act that was to get after the um, racial discrimination, the Democrat-controlled South, which is why they had to pass the Voting Rights Act, because the Democrat-controlled South was racist and was trying to prevent black, newly uh, black American citizens from voting, trying to prevent these new voters, black American citizens from voting. So the protection for all Americans that flowed from ending the Civil War and ending slavery and making every single person here an equal citizen, that protection in the Constitution against racism was the basis for the court saying that they actually then therefore had the ability to um, pass the Voting Rights Act. It was an, an enablement, it was a way to enable or enforce this 14th Amendment. Well, they're making the same argument now about H.R. 1, that this is why they, their authority comes from. And they don't have this authority, folks. I don't know if you get the Supreme Court to ever do anything right again for the rest of time. But what, they, what the Democrats are doing with H.R. 1 is a permanent vote fraud protection act. Permanent vote fraud protection act is what they should be forced to call it. And this would be a great opportunity for red state governments, uh, legislatures, to stand up and do like, like they're doing in South Dakota, saying, preemptively telling you, we're not following this. I, I love that. It's just going to be a time for, um, it's going to be a time for, to, to, to figure out who among our elected officials and candidates and spokespersons in this country have the determination, the, the willingness, the capacity, the fire in the belly to stand up for America as we face the most leftist, Democrat, Marxist party America has ever had in power. It's a real test for who's gonna stand up and, and speak up for the ideas of America. I'm gonna one more story today, and um, I think I called it, yeah, um, SCOTUS betrays the voters, Supreme Court of America betrays the voters. And you probably already saw this, but I wanna take a couple minutes just to explain what happened here. So the Supreme Court uh, had on Friday, of, just this past week, um, they had a series of cases that they always do. They have their conference. All the cases are there that have been uh, where they have appeals or, or you know, the people seeking, seeking, seeking certiorari, they're seeking the Supreme Court to rule on something. So the court has their meeting, all the cases on Friday, announced decisions today. Well, the Supreme Court announced, essentially, that they are dismissing, throwing out, without further review, most of the cases challenging election fraud in 2020. I want to just tell you a few of the examples. In Pennsylvania, 
in the state of Pennsylvania, there was both a, a Republican state legislator and other litigation in which the question was, the Constitution of the United States says that state legislatures make election law. That's, what, that's the, the basic constitutional provision. State legislatures, legislators, make election law in each state. In Pennsylvania, because of the alleged emergency related to COVID, there was an expansion of mail-in ballots and there was an extension of when the mail-in ballots were due to be returned to the government. But those two changes were not made by the legislature. They were made by the courts, which is not permissible under the Constitution. So the, these were the cases saying to the, to the Supreme Court, you know, is it, why is this okay? Are, are we going to really have this election stand? And let me make something really clear in a moment. It's not just does this election stand where we had unconstitutional orders by the courts in Pennsylvania impact which votes got counted, but going forward, is this permissible? Is this permissible in the future? Even, okay, forget, say you can't even do a thing about 2020 because it's over, but in the future, can you really have courts and, and, and other states, election officials, changing policies, changing laws without the legislature or does the Constitution mean what it says and the legislature has to make election law? And of course, in all these cases, much of the tug was you have Republican majority legislators who set the law and you have the potential for a small number of people, whatever number of people sit on a court, whether it's 7, 9, 11, 13, who knows their political orientation, or you have election officials who knows their political orientation, do you have election law changes made by courts, whether they're elected or appointed judges, or election officials that don't represent who were chosen by the voters? And do they, the small number of people, unknown their political orientation, get to just change election law? So going forward, it was a very good question. But the Supreme Court rejected those cases in Pennsylvania, those challenges, and particularly changed it on the grounds of being moot, M-O-O-T, moot, as in already decided, too late, not already decided, too late, doesn't matter anymore because the election is over. So I'll remind you in a moment, this very issue was among the issues when the uh, Texas, the state of Texas under Attorney General uh, Ken Paxton brought his case to the Supreme Court prior to Biden being sworn in. It was in December of 2020, December 10th or 11th, something like that. Paxton brings a case, our Attorney General in Texas, to the Supreme Court challenging Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And the argument with respect to Pennsylvania was these laws that they changed, that the courts changed, make their election invalid. I mean, they're letting, they're letting ballots count that shouldn't be counted. So the court's answer, back when Ken Paxton brought this litigation, and to be really clear about something, by the way, before I can tell you these numbers, 17 other states joined in. So Paxton of Texas, 17 other states join in at the Supreme Court saying, hey, yeah, these people didn't even follow their own state law. Why are they permitted 
to just move forward with a fraudulent election. And, and 126 out of the 196 Republican members of the U.S. House also joined in this litigation. At that time, the Supreme Court's answer was, you don't have standing, and the very precise term is, there was no judicially cognizable interest. And I want to talk about that dismissal in a moment. So the Supreme Court is saying now, as the Pennsylvania cases, well, it's moot, it's all over, election's over. Back then, when the issue is being raised, they're saying no judicially cognizable interest. And they you know, talking about no standing. So they're basically saying there's no way they will review the merits of this case. You can't bring the case ahead of time, and you can't bring the case afterwards. You just can't bring the case. You just don't get to have a ruling on whether or not the courts in Pennsylvania or the legislature in Pennsylvania actually has the authority to make election law. But that was all, so the Supreme Court is basically saying, we punted before, in December, December 11th, I think the ruling was issued, December 11th we punted when the Texas and all these other states and members of Congress saying, hey, wait a minute, these states and the four states that, uh, that he challenged, Paxson challenged, were again, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and those cases where the, uh, the court just said, you know, sorry, uh, you know, no standing, no judicially cognizable um, interest. And I want to make a really important point about that. It really matters in terms of whether we have future fair elections. One shorthand way people referred to the Ken Paxton case was this is Ken Paxton, or this is Republican states sticking their nose into other states, sticking their nose into other states' laws and how they conducted their election. It's none of Texas's business, so the argument went. None of Texas's business how Pennsylvania or those other states conducted their election. It's like a mind-your-own-business defense. But I want to make something really clear. Because we have the Electoral College, the impact of other states' votes ends up mattering at the Electoral College. If you accept the argument, that many people do, that the Democrats orchestrated a theft of the election, that they stole the election through a combination of electronic interference with the election, combined with a massive fraudulent mail-in ballot project compounded by the states taking in mail-in ballots inconsistent with what is permitted by their state law, compounded with all of the evidence of actual election workers saying, yeah, I saw people counting the same ballots over and over in the machine until they got up all the things we saw. The argument that Texas and the other states that joined in the litigation, that it shouldn't matter to them, is ridiculous. Because if that fraud occurred, as many people believe it did, the fraud stole the elections in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and there were other states too, so that the voters in Texas, where we followed the law, 
or as far as everyone knows, and as far as well as we could in Texas and other states, tried to follow the law to the best of our ability. Never perfect, but we tried to follow the law. We didn't have a massive fraud take place. But what that argument is saying is, you know, when they say mind your own business, Texas is, we, these other states, Pennsylvania, et cetera, we can steal the election because the rightful outcome was Trump won our state, but we orchestrated that Biden won our state, and then we get electoral college, and we win, Biden wins, because we've stolen these states. They have stolen the votes, therefore, of the people of Texas. Because the people of Texas, when we vote and other red states vote, we get to our decision, our election, we have our electors chosen who then cast the electoral college votes from our state, and our state's votes are they, the, the power, the impact, the outcome of the election is stolen when the other states who actually also went for Trump have a Biden outcome because they did not follow the laws. They permitted fraud of a variety of kinds. It matters. Every wrong vote, every illegal vote, every stolen vote, every fraudulent vote takes away the power of another voter in that state. You know, if you have one Trump voter who's legal and shows up and votes once for Trump, and then you have, you know, a graveyard person, a deceased person vote, votes for Biden, you know, the Biden vote cancels out the Trump vote. But that shouldn't be the case. The Biden voter who is deceased should not have a vote counted. And it is canceling out the Trump voter. Well, the same is true nationwide. If a state permits fraud to the extent that the outcome is shifted from Trump to Biden, that state is essentially canceling out, the, the theft of elections in that state is canceling out the voters in the state of Texas and other places because they're not getting the fair outcome from a true election that had Trump win in Texas and these other states. The whole is none of your business is not true. It is not a valid argument. But back with the Supreme Court did, it was more than just those, that, those two cases. Um, I want to just mention, um, there was a vigorous dissent by Justice Thomas, who is, you know, a rock star. But Justice Thomas had a vigorous, vigorous defense, uh, dissent in these cases. And I will tell you, there are a bunch of cases, but I want to, what, what his dissent was in this case, the Pennsylvania cases, he's saying, basically, the Constitution says each legislature has authority to determine the manner of federal elections. And he said, but in these states, we had uh, officials who are non-legislative, not legislators, uh, in various states took it upon themselves to set the rules instead. So you had an unusually high number of petitions, emergency applications, etc., contesting those changes. He says these petitions are given a clear example. Uh, in, in Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court extended the deadline when votes had to be received by three days. And so he's saying even if, as the people are arguing that the number of votes that were counted that arrived after the deadline and under Pennsylvania law shouldn't have been counted, but because the Supreme Court extended the deadline, they were counted, even if you say, okay, those, three, those you know, votes shouldn't have been counted, you know, what Clarence Thomas is saying, okay, but people are saying, but that wouldn't have been enough. The votes were counted that came in late weren't enough to change the outcome anyway. He's saying, but even so, 
why doesn't the court address this question? Why don't we do address the question going forward? Because by not addressing it, this is me paraphrasing him, by not addressing it, they're validating that all the antics and shenanigans that the left pulled, no one's reviewing it. No one's looking at it. No one is examining it. No one is issuing a decision such as is needed by the Supreme Court to say, when the Constitution says the legislature must be the ones that set the law directing the manner of holding elections, does that really mean it? Or should the Supreme Court say, or any, anybody else, you know, whatever. Let the Supreme Court rule on that. He's saying not necessarily changing the outcome of the 2020 election, but moving forward. Are we okay with this? We just let this cabal of, in my words, election thieves change laws, change rules, change the outcome and say, oh, well, who knew? You know, we had a law that would have permitted one outcome, but we let the, uh, the leftist vote thieves change rules and we got the opposite outcome and nobody will look at it. This is a frustration uh, that Thomas, very eloquent dissent, he, I won't read it, it's a little bit lengthy, but very eloquent dissent um, that he wrote. I also, Daniel Horowitz of, you know, just brilliant Daniel Horowitz, that conservative review is pointing out, this is what happens every election. They refuse to deal with the problem at hand, so they won't deal with it in December when they had the cases, won't deal with it. No, no, you know, no standing, no justicial, uh, judicially recognizable uh, controversy. And then afterwards, up, oh, now it's moot, it's all over. They've washed their hands the entire issue. The court has. Three dissenters, uh, you know, for whom you might imagine the usual three reliable dissenters. Um, it was Thomas Alito, I'll find the other one. Thomas Alito, one other one, uh, dissented. Um, and everybody else went along with just, just rubber stamping uh, letting the election fraud go. Daniel Horace made a great point. This happens every election. They refuse to deal with the problem at hand. It never gets fixed for the next time because it's moot. This is how the lower federal courts and some state courts have screwed with legislatures and election law for the past 15 years. Okay, but it wasn't just the Pennsylvania cases. The Supreme Court threw out a slew of them, disposed of, rejected, uh, eliminated a, a whole bunch of them. Uh, the Pennsylvania ones I already mentioned. Uh, Lynn Wood case in, in Georgia, uh, challenging results and policies in Georgia. A case out of Arizona was dismissed. Um, a case that Sidney Powell bought in Michigan was dismissed. Um, other Wisconsin results. Anyway, so the point is the court really just basically washed their hands of all these cases. There are, I believe, a few pending cases still floating around in federal court. Uh, but this was, you know, this is a big blow to people hoping the Supreme Court even just looking forward to future elections would look at this and say, is this okay to do? Is this okay to do? And you know, when you think about the idea that they wouldn't, they wouldn't look at the cases before um, the election, they wouldn't look at the cases um, after the election, before the swearing in, and that leaves me one last point I wanna make and I'll wrap up for today. And they may come back to this later in the week, but I've been encouraging you to read the incredibly insightful and, and kind of ongoing, well-written, easy-to-read blog posts that Patrick Byrne is doing in his blog called Deep Capture, deepcapture.com. He's been writing, he was right in the midst of all of the election integrity challenges in 2020. Deepcapture.com, read his blog pieces. I think it's just a whole series, I think it's just called How DJT Lost the Election or something like that. 
But one thing that came out I, I hadn't realized, I want to share with you, and this kind of goes to my, my point about being in the fight for America and, and recognizing this is a time when you're really seeing who has the metal, who has the backbone, who has the willingness to stand up and fight. I learned that on January 5th, the day before the, Supreme, the uh, Congress was going to do their constitutionally required um, conduct, uh, you know, action meeting in which Congress, House and Senate meet and the uh, Electoral College votes are open and counted. So Electoral College votes are open and counted, January 6th meeting presided over by the President of the Senate, who is the then sitting Vice President, who was then Mike Pence. Mike Pence apparently committed on January 5th, the day before that election, that he would send back to the states where they had questions about the Electoral College outcome, where the legislatures themselves have been asking Congress, wait a minute, hold off, send those back. We think we made a mistake. We're, we've discovered fraud. We want to look at this again. Pence had said on January 5th, Vice President Pence, he was willing to do that. That's what he planned to do, to send some of the states, the Electoral College votes back to the states in question because the legislators themselves were saying, hey, there's something wrong here. And he got talked out of that, got talked out of doing that by his chief of staff. Now, maybe others were involved in the conversation with him, and maybe he would say, that even though he committed that he was sending back those electoral college votes on January 5th, that the more he thought about it, he was persuaded by the arguments of his chief of staff, persuaded by whoever else talked to him about it, that he got persuaded, okay, you know what, actually, I shouldn't do that. Maybe he'd say he got persuaded. But I want to make a couple quick points about that. The decision on January 6th to refuse by, for, by the Congress and, and, and Vice President Pence in particular, who was in charge of that proceeding, the decision to refuse to send those Electoral College votes back to the states in question, who were themselves asking to have their votes sent back to them to re-examine them in the light of evidence of fraud, that decision to state, to put it mildly, was monumentally consequential to America monumentally consequential. And it was a decision where, as we said at the time we were talking about it, there was no legal precedent either way as to whether or not Vice President Pence had the authority to do that. There was no precedent saying he absolutely had the authority and could do that. And there was no precedent saying he did not have that authority. It was novel ground. And it was ground that required him to be extremely brave had he decided to send the votes back. He wouldn't be deciding the election. He would not have been deciding the election. He would have been deciding to let the states in question re-examine that what happened in their state, whether there were fraudulent votes, whether there were votes that counted six times, all of the questions then pending before those legislatures 
the legislators themselves would have had a chance to review that. But the decision he made, some may say that it was wisdom, the decision he made to not send them back, some may say it was wisdom, some may say it was the safest course, uh, because otherwise you might have an uprising, otherwise you might have you know, people claiming that he participated in stealing the election for Trump. You would have, I mean, you're gonna have, you're gonna have people angry either way. Either way, he would have had people angry. But the decision to not send those votes back was a, a monumental over the cliff for America into the world of the Democrat Marxist takeover of America. And there was a failure, in my opinion, of, President, of Vice President Pence and his team to understand that. A failure to understand how significant, consequential, monumental it was to allow this, what I think is obvious election theft, to go forward. Obvious, obvious, monumental consequences for America. We wouldn't be where we are today had the votes been sent back, electoral college votes sent back, and those legislatures looked at it again. Now, the legislatures might have looked at it again. They might have examined what they thought was election fraud, and they might all have concluded that, no, they were right the first time. You know, the best answer for their state is Biden won, and the votes we have to count, they could have reached that conclusion. They could have had the opportunity to reach that conclusion, but refusing to send it back foreclosed those states from looking at election fraud. And, yet, and now it's like, you know, it seems like it is so long ago, but at the time, there are people in those legislatures were doing what was normally a perfunctory function. You know, the election happens, we have electors, we have election officials, they tell us the answer, we're the legislature, we certify it. There were just you no know, hints at the edges. There's something really wrong here on election day and the few days following the election. There, we didn't know then what we know now about the scope and breadth of election fraud. But the Pence, I thought that was extremely consequential. I had not realized that Vice President Pence had committed on January 5th, he was gonna send votes back to the states who were concerned that fraud had entered their process and resulted in them perhaps certifying the election for someone who didn't really win it. I didn't know Biden had done that, excuse me, didn't know that Vice President Pence had done that. I didn't know that he then changed his opinion overnight, which I think will be honestly for his future, his political future, I, I think he has none. I think Vice President Pence has no political future. I think many vice presidents think of themselves, someday I'll be president. I mean, I, I know he's gone over for Heritage Foundation. Uh, Vice President Pence has. I will talk about that another day. But he didn't make the he didn't make the brave decision. He didn't make the groundbreaking brave decision. I'm going to I'm going to do something unprecedented here, because I think that the outcome of this election matters so much that I have to make sure the states involved, the states questioning their own outcome have the right to look at this again. He didn't make the brave decision. He made the, at the very least, you can call it safe decision. I would even call it cowardly, a cowardly decision to just 
go along with what we now can see was just massive election fraud. Anyway, I, I, I want to wrap up. I don't need to wrap up. We're out of time here. But on the subject of election fraud, I don't really, I think going forward, there may be more cases that come forward. I've been connected with Sidney Powell. I'm, I think she may have some things in the works. But what we really need to be focusing on, or in addition to still trying to cull out if we can, completely understanding what happened in 2020, we need to be laser focused on 2022 and doing everything we can to correct the potential for election fraud in every conceivable way. And we've had people in the show talking about that. We'll talk about it more. Because going forward, if we ever want to, re want to rebuild again the faith of the American people and the fairness of their election system, it's going to require very hard work on the part of election of, of legislators in every red state. You'd like the blue states, but they won't probably do it. But the red states need to be doing it. They need to be deciding they're going to do everything they can, not just to give a good speech and claim they care about election fraud, but doing the hard work of getting election integrity legislation passed so that we minimize the potential for ever having a 2020 election cycle again. At the close of every show, I tell our listeners why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started out today talking about Herd's mask and the Carlsbad revolt. Dozens of Carlsbad restaurant owners, I told you, I read it was over 100, uh, reopened for business, seating customers inside and out in defiance of Governor Newsom's draconian long-term COVID orders. This is the spirit of American freedom. Owners running their businesses and citizens free to eat at restaurants are part of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Dr. Marty McCary, medical doctor and health policy expert with Johns Hopkins, says America will have herd immunity from COVID by April of this year and confirms that COVID cases are down by 76%, not just due to the vaccine. And I had to throw this in, 99% plus COVID survival rate. More Americans now aware of this. Yet Anthony Fauci says America will still be wearing masks for COVID in 2022. Americans are waking up to the reality that COVID policy, especially in blue states that love big government, has crossed the line from protecting public safety to depriving citizens of constitutionally protected freedom. And on SCOTUS betrayed the voters, the Supreme Court today um, rejected numerous cases related to 2020 elections. One of my very fine friends texted me to tell me the three judges who dissented were Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. We'll have to talk about Amy Coney Barrett sometime soon. I think that what, what a profound disappointment. But back to this. Two cases challenged Pennsylvania mail-in ballot procedures. Find those cases to be moot. Those cases involve non-legislative officials extending the deadline for mail-in ballots, violating state law, despite the Constitution allows only legislators to make election law. Cases challenging Pennsylvania's, Arizona's, Georgia's, and Wisconsin elections were also dismissed, as was one of the Sidney Powell's cases involving the Michigan election. The Supreme Court dismissed a December 2020 case brought by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton in which 17 states and 126 of 196 GOP members of the House joined the court finding no judicially cognizable interest have been shown, no standing. And I will repeat what I was saying earlier. Every fraudulent vote suppresses a legitimate one. Again, no court review of the substance of election fraud claims. 
Frustration mounts that the means and methods of fraud have not been exposed, so future elections are at risk. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. You can email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. You can go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, and on that website, hit the subscribe button, you get our once a week newsletter, and hit the donate button if you'd like to support this show. This, support, this show is supported entirely by listeners. A one-time or recurring donation would be incredibly appreciated. But most of all, I ask you, if you're listening on social media of any kind, remember you can always watch my show live on my website, americacanwetalk.org, forward slash live, forward slash. Go to the website to watch it there. This is one place social media cannot take me down. Wherever else you're listening, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, wherever you're listening, please like, share, comment, tell your friends. If you subscribe to the newsletter, forward the newsletter. It's a great way to share the show. I do this show out of just passionate love for and support of America, the most extraordinary experiment in human liberty ever to bless this earth. I do this show out of love of America. And I do it every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I love having you listen while I speak up about America. And I do that because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can